The foundation is in memory of Lieutenant Joseph P. DiBernardo. Um, Joey was my best friend, and he was one of the people that just pushed me forward and made me want to be a New York City firefighter. The purpose of the foundation is to provide every firefighter in America who can't afford his own personal safety system will buy it for them. It's, it's extremely important to, to give back and remember the legacy of Joey. Um, he, he lost his life and he's not forgotten. We're gonna remember him forever. And we're gonna do that through supporting the, uh, the foundation and all the training that it does. The foundation tries to raise money through donations and also the seminar. The seminar is our big uh, fundraiser for the year. Um, we have uh, almost 300 firefighters here today uh, training at the Suffolk County Fire Academy. So incredibly grateful to be here this weekend at the Joey DiBernardo Training Weekend. Uh, the Memorial Fund has been incredible over the years uh, of what they've been doing in Joey D's legacy uh, is, is mission driven and paying it forward. It's firefighter protection. And the incredible thing about that is that it's done through a training weekend. Um, bringing you know, all these instructors together and firefighters that come in from all over the country to be a part of this weekend really is all about sharing in the legacy of Joey DiBernardo. Well, the main thing about the foundation is we get to pay homage to our friend, brother, firefighter, and instructor, Joey D. And it's just top-notch instructors from all around the country coming in and are offering their sense of street smarts to firefighters from also all around the country. Uh, you, you have everybody volunteering their time, which is great. And again, we want to pay homage to our friend and our brother, Joey, and we teach from the heart. That's the best. There's all kinds of training. There's training on uh, search, there's training on rescue, there's training on um, hose handling, there's training on moving a down fireman. I saw some training being done on giving a down fireman CPR, which I thought was unbelievable. What a, what a great idea. Something I never saw in my career, and I think this is a great idea. There are so many different evolutions going on here, and there's so much going on. It's a great, great seminar. 100% of the proceeds are donated back to fire departments in need. And then the training level that they present is just untouchable. The training that goes on today will save someone's life. With, with the foundation giving the PSSs to all the fire departments and all the grants and all the good work that they've done, they're saving lives directly and indirectly. And everybody that's gone through this training uh, over the past couple days that's being filtered back to their firehouses and to their fire departments and it's our hope that they continue to save lives indirectly or, or directly. We're pushing guys to the limit with what I feel is like some of the best instructors in the country. So you have the whole world encompassed in this. It's a great, great, great training venue. They're giving back to try to save lives. So we, we don't lose anyone else like we, we lost on Black Sunday. So right now, Joey's probably saying, so even though I'm not here, I'm still saving lives. That's what he'd say. Hey everybody, it's Rob, National Fire Radio. Very excited tonight. We are here with special guest, the one and only, world-renowned, retired Chief Craig, a.k.a. Chief Haig, thank you for being here with us on National Fire Radio. Absolutely. What an honor to be with you tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, so for everybody that's out there listening, I got the chance to meet Chief Haig two years ago. Um, 
we were scared out of our mind. It was the start of the you know coronavirus and COVID-19, and we went out to revolutionary fire tactics at the lake and Lake of the Ozarks because training still had to happen. Fires were still being fought, and our, like the men and women of the American Fire Service still had a call to answer. And I got the chance to sit in his class for a little bit, and man, I was just blown away. Um, Chief, thank you. Like I am so excited to have you on tonight. So, Chief, where? Like, let's let's start at square one because you know you you didn't just walk in the firehouse and they say, hey, you look like the guy that can become a chief. Um, let's give you the gold bars. You know, like where did where did you start? Like, where where's home for you? And and where did this journey kind of begin? Well, that's uh, it's been a, it's been a, a long road. Uh, it seems kind of kind of strange. Uh, this past December, it was 38 years uh, since I since I walked in the firehouse, and uh, as I as I think back about those 38 years, it seems like it's been about five. So I'm not I'm not quite sure where it where it went to. What I can tell you absolutely was out. Uh, you know, any any equivocal answer. Uh, if I got the opportunity to do it again, I'd absolutely do it again. This is the this is the best job in the world. But um, for me, um, the the fire service really has been in my mind. Uh, I, I don't ever remember a time that I didn't want to be a firefighter. I think the the earliest uh, recollection that I have of, of the fire service and being excited about seeing the fire truck going up down the road and and uh, going by the fire station, I was about five or six years old. And uh, we, uh, I grew up in a small town in the um, western part of Illinois over along the Mississippi River, uh, the, the village of Hampton. And it's about 2,000 people right along the river. And uh, they had a small volunteer fire department there. And honestly, uh, as, I was, as I was growing up through grade school and junior high, I, all I could think about is I wanted to be a volunteer firefighter on the Hampton Fire Department. That was my goal. That's what I was after. That's that's what I wanted to do. And so uh, they, just because of some incredible leadership there at that little small department, I got the opportunity to start hanging around uh, when I was about 15. And um, they had uh, created a... Um, uh, they called it a, re a reserve firefighter program. It was uh, what most of us would think about today as a as a cadet or a junior or an explorer post. They uh, they they called it a reserve firefighter program, and they would take uh, firefighters from 16 to 19 years old, and they would bring them in to uh, this program. And their goal was is to introduce um, young folks to the fire service, and then. Um, not only introduce them to the fire service, but in essence, build a succession plan for uh, the future of that volunteer organization. Wow. So um, they uh, they allowed me in. I, I couldn't have been uh, more excited to uh, to join. And uh, I just I just poured everything I had into being a member of that volunteer fire department. So that's that's really where it where it started for me. Um, through that, I figured out that, you know, I wanted to I wanted to be a career firefighter and ultimately started to, to look around and test and to get hired. But, yeah, the, the volunteer fire service is really my background and, and really, I, I would say, my first love. Chief, what was it like walking into walking that, fire, in that station fire station for the first time as a member? Well, as a as a member, 
it wasn't too terribly difficult because I had been hanging around since I, for about a year before they ever put me on it at 16. But I, I specifically remember the, uh, the first night I walked in the door. Um, I knew that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't join until I was 16. And I just remember walking in and, and seeing, uh, the firefighters there. Um, many of them I knew by name and by face from living in the community, but, Honestly, I had always been afraid to even approach them or talk to them because they, I had them on such a, such a high pedestal of, these were the heroes of my, of my community. So to walk in the door and even be in in their presence was, was pretty uh, intimidating to me at that, at that moment. And uh, one of the, one of the first things that we did that night, uh, they, uh, they pulled a bunch of us together, a bunch of the young guys and uh, the, the rig had been out on a run, um, earlier in the evening and because we were along the Mississippi river and had a bunch of mayflies and things like that that were uh, plastered against the front of it. And they're like, okay, kid, you're here. You're the new guy. You think you want to be a firefighter? We're going to, we're going to clean the front of the rig. We're going to get these bugs off the front of the rig. So that was really my first introduction to actually doing something in that, in that department. But uh, I could tell you as I, as I'm, as I'm swirling trying to get those bugs off the rig, it was just, well, I'm going to be the best bug cleaner you can have in this organization. And uh, it just, it just kind of led from there. Who, who were some of those early mentors? Cause I mean, this department starting a reserve firefighter program to build a succession plan. And, and I have it here that you joined in 1983. Yeah. That's pretty revolutionary for that time. It's uh, I would, I would argue that uh, the mastermind behind all of that was uh, Chief Larry Anderson. And uh, in my mind, uh, when, you, when you talk about uh, different folks in your life that are, that are mentors, different folks that have, uh, you've watched and learned from, um, he's the guy. He is, he is the guy that when I think about a fire chief, when I think about what a fire chief ought to be like, how they should act, how they should look, how they should speak, how they should perform in public, how they should perform in an emergency incident. He's the guy I think about. And so uh, for somebody that spent um, pretty close to 30 years wearing five bugles on his collar, uh, I can tell you that in those 30 years that I sat in that position, uh, um, I continually had in my mind using Chief Anderson as an example to me and, and my leadership style. Um, Chief Anderson had a, a kind of a unique background. He was a second generation volunteer uh, there at Hampton. Uh, his father had been one of the original um, volunteers that created the organization. And then Chief Anderson uh, came on the department as a, as a young man. But his profession was um, he was one of the one of the directors of safety for 3M Corporation. And uh, they have a, a large plant in Cordova, Illinois, which is just north of Hampton. And he worked there. And so um, what Chief Anderson brought to our little volunteer organization was the professionalism that he learned working for 3M and learned working through a corporate fire brigade system. Um, he would bring that and transition that into, into our department. He was very visionary, very forward thinking, um, thinking about succession and how to build the organization and where we were at and where we needed to go down the road. And uh, that really, I think, in an awful lot of ways was driven based on his career profession at 3M. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of, 
kind of crazy to see that. So you're in this time. You eventually move up yourself up the ranks to volunteer fire chief for this organization. I, I did. Um, growing up, I uh, as I said, I always I always thought about I want to be a I want to the fire department. But I also had in my mind I want to be their fire chief. And of course, I didn't tell anybody that. I didn't want anybody to know. So I was I didn't want anybody to 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 actually think that I thought I was good enough to be to be the fire chief. But uh, I, I I came on and uh, as a young guy um, got the opportunity based on uh, retirement of the chief that followed Chief Anderson. Uh, none of us really expected him to leave, and uh, I was approached by leadership of the community and said, "Hey, would you?" Would you be interested in applying? By that time, I was a full-time firefighter at the City of Rock Island, and was continuing to work as a volunteer there in Hampton. I lived in Hampton, and they said, "Would you be interested in applying for the position?" And I did, and much to my surprise, I I got it. Uh, as I think back now, I think about the the position, I think about the mistakes I made, things like that. I I I, I often I often question the. Um, what the what the village board was thinking to uh, to appoint a 24 year old kid to be uh, to be fire chief of that organization, but they did it, and I and I gave them everything I had. Um, so, yeah, I, I got I got I guess I got to live out my childhood dream of of leading that organization. What were some what of the mistakes that you? you made along the way that are you comfortable talking about them or not? Oh, uh, sure. Um, I would say, uh, some of the, some of the biggest mistakes, um, you know, tactically, I, I think I, I think I did okay at emergency incidents. Um, you know, I had the experience of the city of Rock Island, which is an old, uh, well-established, pretty great organization. And, and so I, I got to bring some experience from some, some mentors that had taught me there to do, to, to make some good decisions to do things right. So I think emergency incident wise, we did okay, but, um, man, I struggled with, uh, some of the, some of the leadership aspects. Um, I struggled with being a, um, really a, a, a kid in, in so, so many ways, being the, the fire chief, being a young guy, uh, leading people that have been in the organization for a very long time, leading folks that were, were older than my parents and, uh, trying to figure out the balance of being respectful yet being the boss. And that, um, that was not an easy scenario. Now, as I, as I look back, I think what the organization and the, and the membership wanted is I think they wanted a, somebody to lead. And they didn't care whether, whether it was a 24, 25, 26-year-old kid or whether it was a 45, 46, 47-year-old kid, a, a guy uh, they want they want leadership. That's what they were after. On the other hand, had in the back of my mind, well, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to lead them. I'm not sure that I'm qualified to be in the spot that I'm in. So I had this continual self doubt that I think, uh, in a lot of ways, hindered um, my ability to to make um, not necessarily sound decisions, but timely decisions. So decisions that would take me two weeks to make that 
you know, fast forward to the, to the, you know, the end of my time sitting in the big chair, uh, I'd have make in four or five minutes. So yeah. it was that learning experience. I think that it's, you, you hit something on the head there when you said about the leadership and that they were looking for leadership. And I think a lot of times in the fire service, some of us get caught up in, cause I know I did it myself when I got promoted to Lieutenant, but like there's also this thing in the business world of what the market, the market's going to demand something and the market wants it, whether we agree with it or not, somebody's going to fill that void. So I just, as you're describing this, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking of you four-year-old who has this responsibility that, you know, where most, many other people would say like, oh, as a 24-year-old kid, they're like, hey, we don't care who it is. We need leadership. And then it's this dynamic of having to, to overcome this and, and stumble through it. It's, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's crazy, you know, and it, what, a, what a great experience as well. I mean, and then to look back at the decisions because what, what so if there's a 24 year old um, firefighter out there or officer who's moving up the ranks and they're, they're getting themselves into a responsibility position, what's your advice for them, especially in the volunteer service? Cause we're seeing a younger reiteration of the fire service now. I, I think, I think if I had to give my my best advice based on my experience i would say one you need to surround yourself with people that are going to help you do the job you need to you need to build a team uh, of officers around you that are um folks who are not afraid to tell you when you're headed down the wrong down the wrong road um you know i used to i used to tell my my command staff at hanover park um your number one responsibility to me as fire chief is tell me when I'm wrong. And I think that goes all the way back to the beginning um, as a volunteer. And I would tell, I would tell young guys stepping into that position today. And there's, and there's a lot of them out there uh, just based on the, the dynamic scenario we've got in the volunteer fire service today. If you're stepping into that position, surround yourself with the best people you can get your hands on and um, listen, listen to them let them advise you and make it clear to them that you need them to advise you. You're going to make the decision. It's going to be your decision. And sometimes it'll be contrary to what it is that they maybe recommended to you, but you need to have, they need to feel comfortable and they need to feel confident in giving you advice and, and really serving. We call them the command staff. They're almost like the, the cabinet that surrounds you. They, they, they bring you the information that you need to know. And so I think that's that's hugely important, and you need to very carefully select that group of individuals that you surround yourself with. One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. The senior man in the fire service, service is changing, changing as well. Oh yeah. Any advice Any for them? Because I know, like, I know, like my guy, my, my, you know, our, our friend Joe, friend who lost the mustache, young senior man of the of my group. And that this is more commonplace throughout the fire service. I think something similar happens in that dynamic as well. Any advice for the young senior firefighters that are stepping into those roles? Well, I think the first thing that's critically important is you need to step up. You need to you need to fill that role. Um, I I've seen a I've seen a little bit of a, a a blip in the radar, if you will, over over my thirty plus years. Uh, when I came on, uh, the senior man was a was a big deal, and and the senior man kind of ran what was going on on the floor, and you 
you paid attention to him and you listened to what was going on and, and he made things work. He was in essence the, 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 the boots on the ground for that company officer. And then I saw the senior man position really take a nosedive and that it, it didn't seem to be talked about. It didn't seem to be as important. It didn't seem to be something that um, we in the fire service thought we should continue and espouse to have. And, and, um, and then in many ways we had folks that they were the senior man, but they didn't step up. They didn't, they didn't lead. They didn't do the things that they needed to do. And yeah. I'm seeing, I think a pretty positive resurgence in the recognition of how important that role is. So my advice is that if you are the senior man on the floor, whether you whether you get the bugles on your collar or whether you're you're uh, you know you're the senior guy out there or you're uh, sometimes the designated senior guy because the senior guy doesn't want to do it, isn't capable of stepping to the plate. Um, if you're in that position, you need to take that as, as seriously uh, as you can and learn to grow and develop and build yourself and fill the role and really become not the buddy of the folks on the floor. You really need to become the eyes and the ears of the officer and carry that message down so that the crew is ready to perform and is ready to hit the street and serve the people of your community. I, I think about the senior person who's checked out that road firefighter who's retired on active duty. Oh yeah. And, and just kind of buying their time. Um, just one more thing I want to follow up on this just because it's, and I didn't even think about this before we talked tonight, but what would you tell the officers who are coming in? Because I think this is the other thing, like they have in their mindset, the senior man needs to be a 20 year, you know, salty backstep firefighter, but they could very well be walking into that person who has four to five, six years on. And like, you don't, I can't make. Craig Elderkin, who was my senior firefighter when I first got promoted, come back because he's retired. He put his time in. So now we're, we're dealing with this younger group. What should the new officer be looking for and how should they be supporting that senior firefighter? Because I don't think that conversation happens often. No, I, I think you're probably very right there. Um, I, I think that our our senior firefighters are those who are filling that role. And as, and as you brought up, I think very astutely, we've got some folks in our business today that are uh, retired on active duty and they're, they may be the senior player, but they're not going to fill that role. And, um, and I think we need to recognize that and okay, that's fine. If, if I've got a senior guy and he's retired on active duty and he's, and he's waiting for the, to put his papers in, then that, then that's what you got. Somebody else is going to have to step to the table. Um, but I think what we as officers, we, we, I think we miss the opportunity or we, or we just, we just flat don't do it. We don't, we don't convey the message. We don't sit down and spend time with that, with our senior person. We, we don't, um, share with them our expectations. We don't share with them what it is that we need them to do for us out there on the floor. Um, I think in as I look at the global fire service, being a company officer is not what it used to be. Um, we have lost so much of our middle management in most fire departments today. Uh, we've got company officers that uh, you may be you may be a one bugle lieutenant and you're functioning like a captain every day. Are you 
you may be the captain on duty and you're functioning like a like the the battalion chief or a division chief doing extra projects and extra work and and that's the only way we can function today because those middle management positions are gone that puts us in a spot where the company officer is no longer uh not necessarily by choice um they are no longer able to be out there on the floor working with their people day in and day out and and conveying the messages that they need to convey because of the simple workload that our, our organizations have put them under mm -hmm. i think you've got to talk to your senior your senior man you've got to say hey i need you to do this for me i need you to help me move this message forward i need you to ensure that this is ready to go i need you to ensure that our people are are skilled and trained and working on these various things because it's not that I don't want to do it. It's not that I don't want to be out there with them as a company officer. It's just the reality of the business that we've got ourselves into in the fire service today. I may not be able to be out there with them. And I don't think we necessarily always communicate that clearly to our people. Yeah. I, I feel like I see it a lot as we're traveling around and it's one of the things that like I make sure, you know, at least for my, the people that I'm working with, like in my absence, I always say like Joe has my authority and I expect you to follow, you know, his orders or his word. And if I'm not here and like, that's that, like he carries my weight and I back him up 100% because that's the key. Right? I, I will own his mistakes and we'll talk about them, but I'll never hold them against him because like he, he needs that support of his officer because if I would expect him to be able to do those and have that, I don't want to say the authority to do it, but like the chutzpah, so to speak, to carry that out, I've got to support him. And I'll, I'll always step in front of the, the firing squad if it comes up to a mistake that, he, that we made and we can talk about it, we can learn from it, but nobody's going to hang him out to dry. And I'm not going to sit there and be like, well, I didn't tell him to do that. Like, so a part well, of that. You need to be intentional about giving the senior man opportunities, even, yeah. even when we're around even when we're there and have the opportunity to, to, to be in the middle of something, I think we need to give them opportunities to step in and lead and, and to do those things so we can back them up. And, uh, you know, it's not just that, well, they get to lead when we're not there. I think we need to let them lead on a, on a pretty regular basis and, and, yeah. and set them up into those positions so they can be successful. 100%. All right. So we've gone on a little bit of a tangent there. We got into some weeds, but, uh, so let's let's go into your career fire service. So you start out, you get hired in Rock Island. I did. Yep. Back in '88, um, mm -hmm. and then kind of take me through your career from here. Like you, so probationary year. It seems like it was a fun time for you. It was. It was a. It was a pretty great time. Rock Island is um, is a is an interesting community. I mean, growing up in the Quad Cities, um, Rock Island is the. Uh, I, well, it was a lot rougher. Uh, a few years ago than what it what it is today they've made they've made a lot of progress and so I, I grew up in the quad cities and uh i remember um my mom always told me um as you're as you're in high school whenever there's a or, you know our high school would be playing the rock island teams or something like that she's she's like if they come to our town to play us in a football game you can be there but you are not ever 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 to go to rock island because you'll get killed over there that's a that's a rough town so uh that was that was drilled into into my mind so uh when i took the test to uh you know uh try to get on the hiring list for the city of rock island 
Um, I was a young guy. I was 19 years old. I'm, I'm taking this, I'm taking this uh, fire department test. And, you know, uh, my mom had told me, well, you're taking it just for the experience because you're not going to work over there. That's a, that's a pretty tough town, pretty rough town, and you don't belong over there. And lo and behold, I, I end up real high on the hiring list and get pulled the first round and, and go to work. So um, I was pretty excited for the opportunity to go to work for what I think is a you know, pretty incredible organization. Uh, but that was from a kid from uh, the other end of town, from little small Hampton, uh, with parents that weren't really excited about him working in a, in a tough area. Um, it was a made some for interesting conversations for me as, uh, as I was growing up and still living at home. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I got, I got on, um, was, uh, in that first probationary year was assigned to engine one, which is the engine at our headquarters fire station. Um, just had some, just had some incredible mentors that, that were there worked for uh, battalion chief, Bob Collins, um, I would, I would argue that Bob Collins is probably uh, the best overall incident commander in all the years that, that I've been in the fire service, probably the best incident commander I've ever, I've ever had the, the pleasure to operate with. Right. He, um, he knew how to size up a scene. He knew how to read a building. He knew how to read the incident, but he also um, understood how to give a directive and then let his people carry that directive out. And he wasn't one that was continually bugging you on the radio. You make a progress, you're getting this, you're getting that, are you working on that? It was, he'd give you a directive and he'd let you carry out the task that you needed to carry out. If you needed something, tell him you needed it, he'd get it for you. And he, and he was always watching, he was always paying attention, but he was reading the conditions. He would communicate back and forth with his officers. Uh, I, I, uh, I got the opportunity to work with him as both a recruit and I got the opportunity to work with him as a boss and uh, he um, you, you'd be inside of the building and he'd say hey this is what I see what do you see and we'd make tactical decisions based on that that dual-minded inside and outside of the structure and uh, scenario and just 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 he was just fantastic um, the other thing with Chief Collins that I that I so very much appreciated and learned a ton from was um, his overall ability to manage the personnel on a shift. Um, he, he knew when to intervene and he knew when to let the people on the shift work out the challenges that come along with sticking a bunch of type A personalities in a, in a, in a fire station together for a 24 hour shift. And um, he, he just instinctively knew how to do that. And, and I think that, that built the strength of the team. It built the strength of his lieutenants and captains. And uh, he was, he, I, I loved working with him. I loved watching him because I thought he was just a real, just a real giant in what it is that he does. That's awesome. That's awesome. The, all these great leaders, I mean, you know, I, I don't have kids. I got two dogs, but they, uh, you very much take on this fatherly aspect of it, at least the ones who are doing it right. And that's what I see is a, like, it's almost like a matriarch of a family holding things together, knows when to speak up, but knows when to let everybody kind of settle the difference. So they figure it out themselves and they all move on. I think that's like, just, that's fantastic. That's good stuff. So, yeah, I, um, I, uh, I, I worked with him, got through my probationary year. Um, I got to stay 
at our headquarters station, which is where our, our heavy rescue company was at. Uh, because I was a paramedic when I came on the job, um, I got to, I got to ride on, I would get detailed to the ambulance, uh, as an EMT, we were paramedic at that time, but as an EMT, but I would also get to ride that, that rescue. And, um, it, it went citywide, did things that rescues do. And it was just, uh, for a young guy, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, were the members assigned to that rescue company like you know atypical yeah. of a rescue company like hard chargers just the, yeah. the people yeah. to be a sponge around and, and kind of take that information absolutely and, yeah. and any memorable incidents off the top of your head on the back step of that rescue or where you were just like wow like you really learned something today or you just it was pivotal for you number number of different uh, fires number of different um extrications um rescue situations uh one that as we just talked that jump up, jumps out at me um i had always been taught in a rescue environment you're you're you never ever 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 move a vehicle um you know you just you just don't do that you stabilize the patient you remove the vehicle from the from around the patient blah 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 blah, blah. and uh i remember we had a, a vehicle that was rolled over up against a, a, a big heavy duty uh utility pole and we pushed and pushed and pushed and we could we we could not we didn't we didn't have anything to move the vehicle the because of the way it was positioned to push the whole weight of the vehicle away from that pole and uh, one of our old time company officers that just flat knew how to do the job and had been to you know a ton of calls was like we're moving the car and you know i'm thinking to myself like oh this do this this is you know every book i've ever read says this is the wrong mm -hmm. thing to do and he, he's like all right we're gonna let me show you how we're gonna do this and we're gonna we're gonna put this together and we're gonna stabilize the patient and we're gonna use the tow truck and we're moving the car and we set it up we did it it was we followed step by step by step instructions of what he laid out we moved the car and as yeah. soon as we moved away from the pole the patient came out and I, I just remember thinking back at that incident while I was there, what was going through my mind of this is wrong based on every textbook I've read, yeah, but I yeah. trust him explicitly. And if he believes we need to do this, then this is what we're going to do. And his call just based on his experience was dead on accurate. We got the patient out and they survived and, 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 and did real well, but it's, it, it, it taught me the lesson of, be very, very cautious in our business of always and nevers. Um, there are very few things that, you know, when you hear guys that will say to you, well, you always do this or you never do that. Um, I've been to enough incidents now to know that those hard and fast rules of always and never maybe aren't necessarily accurate. It's, it's more of the thinking, intelligent, experienced, figure out what the plan needs to be done to be accomplished and put that together and come up with a solution instead of just following some specific rule um, that maybe you read in a textbook that wasn't necessarily accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're in, in, in you're in Rock Island city. You're having the time of your life. You're going to find a good spot right out with engine one. You have a good, good boss. You got good mentors. You're on the rest. And then they derailed me. <laughs> and then they derailed you. So what happened? Yeah. Um, the the city had taken over the ambulance. 
and it was it was part of the fire department and uh it was the right thing to do uh they had a private contractor before that and uh they took it over and we were functioning at the emt level and um there were there were three of us on the entire department that were paramedics at, at that point and um the uh chief collins came to me um you know young guy on the job and he, he comes to me and he said hey you need to go down you need to go down stairs and see the fire chief he, he wants to talk to you about a project he's got that he wants you to do now by this time i had i had some experience at, at on the volunteer department and i had some experience on working on a couple things at rock island i'm like oh cool a project i'm in i like to do projects so i go down to see the chief and i'm like uh hey chief you want to see me and he said um he said yeah i um i want to take you off of shift I want to take you off of your company. I want to bring you into administration and I want you to build a paramedic program for us. I can hear the balloon deflating <laughs> all this time ago. Loud and clear. Like, uh, I'm like, you know, Chief, I love what I'm doing. I got a great company. I'm having fun. This is the greatest job in the world. Um, and you want me to do what? What? Um, he's like, no, no, this is going to be really good. I, I want you to do this. And I'm like, okay, well, so what are you thinking? I come in, I spend three, four months and put this thing together. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's going to take way more than that. I need you to, I need you to put, start from scratch, put it together. I need you to get all of the system plans through the state. I need you to figure out how we're going to convert our ambulances. You need to buy all the equipment. We need to convince the city council we're going to do this. So they give us the money. Oh, and by the way, we've got to build an educational program. And we're not going to send our folks out, so we're going to have to educate them in-house. So you need to build a program to get a educational program within within the, the department for our people and put it on the street. I thought, wow, that that should be easy. Yeah, I should maybe be able to do it in four months so I could get back to my fire company. Yeah. Um, reality is uh, I spent three and a half years in administration um doing what it is that they asked me to do and then continuing to run the program um after after we got it up and going and um i look back at it now and uh, you know if you if you would say to me what do you what do you think the thing is that in your 30 plus years of leading in the fire service that had the most profound impact or uh, made the biggest difference I think putting together that paramedic program in Rock Island, I think that's that's the thing in my estimation that made the biggest difference for the residents I've served. Um, 100%. Hugely, hugely challenging for a young guy, um, but um, I'm, I'm looking back now. I'm super glad that I got the opportunity to do it. I cannot even imagine the amount of lives that were inadvertently touched by that program. Like I mean, having ALS care, like interventions that were done. I mean. That's that's insane. That's that, like that boggles my mind. Like I'm just it's going into like a little bit of a, a shutdown when you think about like all the, I mean, just cardioversions. How many people got cardioverted in in the time from when you started that program to now? How many uh, advanced yeah. airways were placed in? How many people got darted for a pneumothorax or something like that? You know, and, and attention nemo. And like that's just that's all that started. And you were four months. I'm gonna get back on the line. You know, like. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, it was kind of crazy to think I was going to go back in that short amount of time. But um, oh. yeah, what a what a just an overall cool experience, which really I would argue uh, between that 
and the opportunity to get to be chief of the volunteer department, that really set my career up um, in, a, in a going down a path that I certainly didn't think that it would that it would be going. But um, I would say those were the two those two issues are the or the driving the driving foundational aspects of where my career went uh, from there. So you're doing this thing in administration. It takes three and a half years. Um, and then at one point you're going to, you're going to leave Hampton and Rock Island to go down to King, North Carolina. But before you do that, like you're on a promotional track or are you still a firefighter at this point? No, I was promoted, um, while I was in administration. And okay. so, um, that, uh, that, you know, that, that Lieutenant's promotion came, uh, while I was in there. And then after three and a half years, I got the opportunity to go back on the street. Uh, an opening came back or opened up and the chief had told me, Hey, if you, if you ever want to go back, I'll give you your choice of assignments to go back. And so the position opened on the squad. I wanted to go back and, and I took it. So I went back, um, thinking that, you know, this'll, this'll be really, this'll be really great. I'm gonna go back and go fires. I'm gonna get to, I'm gonna get to, to see and participate and be part of the, the fruits of the labor of the, of the paramedic program we put on the street. Um, not really thinking that anything would be different, you know, that I would, that I would, um, uh, I would I'd be chief at Hampton and I'd be at Rock Island and that's where my life would be for, for all, of, you know, all of the rest of my years. But, um, in 1995, I got the opportunity um, to leave both organizations, uh, move 800 miles away to King, North Carolina, and um, build a combination fire department from scratch. So um, if you kind of set that up for you, uh, King is the town that is immediately north of the city of Winston-Salem. They were um, rapidly growing, rapidly expanding in population. They were 100% volunteer department. Um, they were doing about a thousand runs a year with their volunteers, and it had gotten to the point where the volunteers were only answering about 800 of them. And so the district board thought that was a problem that if you're if you're missing 20% of your runs a year, and they decided that they were going to go combination. And the first step in that process was to hire an outside or to hire a full-time fire chief to come in and in essence, uh, put the foundation together and start that transition from, from volunteer to combination. So based on my experience as a, as a, a career firefighter, based on my experience with EMS, based on my experience as a, as a volunteer uh, chief officer and my training background from, um, the University of Illinois Fire Service Institute, um, they thought I would be a good fit for them. And so as my wife and I talk about, uh, we were young enough and dumb enough at that moment to think that this would be something fun to do. So we did something we never had envisioned. We, we, we left our family and took the position and moved down there. So one of the things that I picked up on as you're talking about this move and what the city is doing is that they're hiring a career chief first before they're putting career staff on correct and i mean in new york state at least in my small sphere of uh, observance i see many municipalities hire career staff um 
and like it's almost like putting the cart in for, uh, the horse uh, behind yeah. the cart or the cart in front of the horse right like, i get these things mixed up in my mind all the time but there's now there's these career positions and there's nobody to really supervise them or maybe the qualifications of the volunteer staff or the command staff are not in par with what the career firefighters just went through in their academy um mixed in with some other i'll just say uh career issues that will populate um like that to me is crazy can you can, like am, am i first off am i off base with that because i see this being a problem throughout the american fire services where all right the volunteers aren't getting out let's start hiring a couple career guys and then there's no support for them at all and nobody knows really what to do with them because it's like one minute we're a volunteer department now well we're a combination and these paid guys are here you know and what do we do with them like yeah, I, 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 I would say you're thinking from my experience at least uh, I think you're you're thinking exactly right um, I would say in the, in the King scenario what what they did that was right mm -hmm. is um, they hired they hired a, a paid fire chief first um, because they knew they wanted to be combination. I think so often when we make the decision that we're going to move from all volunteer to combination, um, it's we're just going to hire some we're just going to hire some paid firefighters, and they're somehow going to offset the workload of the volunteers, and they're going to make things better, and and it's just going to be this is the down the path we're going to go, and and I see a lot of departments that they'll take the position of, well, if one paid firefighter is good, then two paid firefighters are better. And if two paid firefighters are good, then four paid firefighters are better. And all of a sudden you end up with an organization that uh, um, has a lot of staff, but they have no foundational system established for how to manage a, a true fire department that's got career personnel. And so I, I think what I think what King did um, that, that was that was pretty brilliant from the from the uh, get go is uh, they they said they said two things to me um, one as the incoming chief they wanted me to to build the foundation for a career department now what that what that meant was um, you need to build everything from um, uh, payroll systems to hiring practices to promotional practices to insurance systems to pension systems to um, uh, how how is this organization going to be function as it relates to employee handbooks and policies and procedures and uh, the financial aspects associated with that they put all that together that's the foundational um, organization that this department is going to be built on for years regardless of whether we're one station or we're ten stations if that foundation is built correctly, then you're going to be solid and you can you can build on top of it. Um, so they said that that was very important. They wanted me to they wanted me to put that together. So that was one of the things I was I was tasked with. Um, the second thing that I was that was made very clear to me is that they wanted to continue to be a combination department going down the road. And they had done their research and they had they had, they had noticed that um, there seems to be then and now a trend of you got a volunteer fire department and as soon as you start hiring some paid folks um without the proper leadership you very quickly end up with a paid organization and your and your volunteers will be will be out and um 
King said to me, uh, we want you to we want you to think about our leadership structure uh, as a pyramid, as an example. Uh, we at the top of that pyramid is going to be a paid fire chief. That's what we want to have that we think that's important. That's what we want to do. And then underneath that, in the next tier, you think about the sides of that pyramid. Uh, one side of it will be our career staff. One side of that pyramid will be our volunteer staff. And um, so we want to have, as an example, we want to have a paid assistant fire chief in the future. We want to have a volunteer or a paid on call. Now they're paid on call in King, but we want a paid on call assistant fire chief. Uh, we want those two people to be part of the command staff. We want them to um, operate and be able to, to function equally together. Uh, we want them to be able to cross back and forth. We want them to be able to cover for each other. Uh, we want them to be real assistant chiefs, whether they're paid or whether they're volunteer or paid on call. We want them to be the same. So you need to build that. And then underneath that, we're going to have uh, on each side, we're going to have paid and volunteer captains. And underneath that, we're going to have paid and volunteer lieutenants and then paid and volunteer uh, firefighters. And, and we don't want to see division. We don't want to see one side is better than the other. You need to figure out how to manage that collectively so that we serve the residents of the community. And they don't know when we get off of the rig, whether the company officer sitting in the front seat is a paid, a paid full-time firefighter or whether they're a volunteer. They're both professional firefighters representing the city of King. When they get off the rig, that's what the residents see. Building the foundation, a lot of work, pretty easy. Mm -hmm. uh, building that pyramid, and being able to keep those players functioning together as the district had outlined, that is a full-time, hands-on, day-in, day-out, moment-by-moment leadership scenario that if you take your eye off the ball, it's going to come apart on you. And, and I think a lot of organizations will, will, will let that happen. And quite frankly, um, I've, led, I've led career departments here in Hanover Park. I've led... I've led volunteer departments in, in Hampton and I've led departments in, in North Carolina. Um, being fire chief's hard. If you want the most difficult department to lead, run a combination department. That's that's the tough one. That's the one where you really got to have your act together. So trying to think how to put this and I'll probably say it wrong what makes it so difficult because sometimes i i've observed different combination departments like i work for a combination department and we have a very clear and cut chain of command and who's in charge and it seems to work um and everybody understands it when they come into the organization and it doesn't go this way this way it's boom 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 and it's this is the pecking order where i see issues is when the pecking order becomes very convoluted that's the key so I have the chief up here. Then I have over here the career captain. I have a volunteer captain, and then like, and then and the, it starts crossing. And like I, I always say, like it's you know the old clause of separate but equal didn't really work. Um, so like it it becomes complicated fast, and then that's when resentment builds. And these are the challenges that this combination service has to overcome. Do you see the same thing? I think that I think what you just laid out is exactly the scenario. And it's that it's that, um, you know, as a, as a good friend of mine used to say, you've got to have the whole team pulling the rope in the same direction. And right. so it's 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 the message, I think, from the top 
flowing down through the organization that this is how we're set up. This is the pecking order. This is how we're going to operate. These are the expectations. And, and we, hold, we hold each other accountable um, to ensure that we're going to function that way. And when we, when, we, when we allow it to vary one way or another, we tend to get ourselves into trouble. And, um, and when we get career staff, as an example, and I, I, I've, seen, I've seen trouble occur on both sides. I think when we get, see career staff that, well, we're, we're professional firefighters, um, and then the volunteers, you know, feel slighted because they're, well, because we're a volunteer, are we not professional? Well, the reality is it doesn't matter whether you get a paycheck or whether you volunteer to do this job. Professionalism is a, is a, how we perform. It's not based on a paycheck. And, uh, and I think sometimes we got to, that's where leadership's got to step in and curb some of that craziness that can occur. And, um, you got to know the volunteers. Usually, um, they have a, 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 a pretty strong political base and, um, Sometimes that can create some challenges on the other side for the for the paid folks. So I think it really comes down to leadership and the leader continuing to ensure that um, this is the direction we're going to go and we're going to hold our folks accountable and, and ensure that, that that's how we're going to perform. Yeah, I've always found it interesting because when I first moved to Dutchess County, I joined the Arlington Fire District and the Croft Corners Fire Company as a volunteer member. It was my first time being involved with the uh, combination staff. And I was actually sh shocked to see that there was a rift between career staff and, and volunteers. And I remember there was a volunteer, Jim Capasso, he was one of the lieutenants. And he told me one day, cause like I was getting confused, you know, I was even starting to buy into some of the BS yeah, right. um, yep. as a volunteer. And he said to me, he said, you know, the people that we're here for are the people dialing 911. Like the career guy, he might not like you, and he has his own reasons for that. And you can't control that. You can only control your actions when you're around them. And those actions are going to be helping the community. So, it, you know, and, and unfortunately for me, it was one of those learning things where I learned it a little too late in my volunteer career um, before getting hired by the city of Poughkeepsie. But like, you know, if there's one thing that I could tell myself, it would be like, I wish I had that conversation a lot sooner um, just because it, it was one of those things where, you know, once I had that mindset of we're here for the citizens and it doesn't matter, like do your job. If they're upset with you, sticks and stones will break your bones. But like the, the citizen is what matters and, and delivering them the best service. So, yeah, it was uh, it, that's that's a role in diplomacy. I think what we really need to do if I can figure it out is take anybody who's doing a combination department successfully and then send them to the Middle East. I bet you we could get a, a better peace deal. I mean, I think you're. I Pretty accurate there. What you what you just described from that officer, that's leadership. That's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. And and going back to our original, we started this. Um, I I think uh, saying that you know hiring the hiring the fire chief first to build that foundation. Um, I see I see a lot of departments. In fact, uh, you know my post retirement uh, job, uh, you know working as a consultant now. I'm I'm getting ready to. To do a major project with a with an organization, good department. Um, went from combination to fully career. Went down this path, and um, I would say that because they didn't 
hire the fire chief up front and build the foundation and they just started piling on people on top they've got a they've got an organization that's now listing like the the leaning tower of pisa and um the challenge that that we're looking at is trying to figure out how to go back in there and shore up the foundation that was never built and you know the question i've got in my mind now is that is it so top heavy that um you know there may not be any way to shore up the foundation and then and then what's that look like so i i I think that's a real problem when when departments go that direction but you know what there's nobody out there telling them how to create a combination fire department nobody out there teaching that stuff so so they just they just they just don't know well and i think it's also short-sightedness on the departments because you know when you said in the beginning of this i have in my notes here that they were running about a thousand calls i think Maybe it's, I don't know if it's actually the time to around 700 calls is when volunteer agencies start to have difficulty covering calls because it's just, depending on membership and everything else, that's a significant amount of alarms to run. So the the short-sighted aspect of these leaders who are in the position is we're going to hire some career staff to help us with the runs, maybe in the daytime. And that's where it ends. And they don't move beyond, like, even the stuff of, like, the payroll, the HR aspects, you know, like, who's going to tell, like, how... What have you done as a volunteer firefighter and a volunteer officer? Hey, Craig, don't do that again, man. Like, we're going to have a real problem. We might have to kick you out of the company if you keep screwing up like this, you know? And like, okay, I'm sorry, you know. But then now you have somebody who's a, you know, a career, I don't want to say a career employee because we're all technically employees, but you can't vote them out. You know, that's it's not it's not as easy as it used to be. Yeah, right. You don't blackball them and, you know, off we go. It doesn't work that way. So there is nobody out there talking about this. And I think it's really important because it's going to be like, it's something that a, a colleague of mine once said, if you look at the IFF magazine, it's not like there's new local numbers coming out with 150 new members, you know, like it's not like the city of Hooterville just decided, Oh, we need some paid guys here. So let's hire six battalion chiefs, 15 captains, you know, 13 lieutenants, and then about 120 firefighters and buy all the equipment it's combination departments that are starting up you know small locals maybe 10 at a time you know for the membership and there really does need to be a there is a right way to do it and there is definitely a wrong way to do it so yeah yeah i think the foundational aspect is um is pretty essential or it it can go horribly wrong pretty quickly and and i think the other thing that we need to keep in mind and, and sometimes our our membership in the combination agency, especially our paid staff, as we as we you know you start to you start to move up and you and you you get your own local and you become part of the IEFF and things like that, um, because because we're firemen, you know nobody nobody ever taught us any you know mm-hmm. we're we're type A personalities we want to go to answer, go to runs we don't think about the business side of the job, and um, I, I I think we we start down that path of well maybe we have got thirty volunteers that are backing us up. And we got 10 paid folks. Well, you know, maybe we should get rid of those volunteers and we'll get now we'll have 30 paid folks. The the reality though that comes with that, because we nobody teaches us this stuff is is that because of the laws as it relates to taxation and tax caps and, and mm-hmm. levies um, and assess valuation. Well, if you run off those 30 volunteers, you're not gonna get 30 paid folks because your tax 
body probably can't support the funds that would be required to create that, that career staff. So we shoot ourselves in the foot unknowingly because we don't understand how you actually fund an organization. Right. And then you, right. and then you get into a situation of, well, now I got 10 of us. I don't have enough people to do the job effectively. We're really, really, really struggling because I ran off and were, was mean to the 30 volunteers that were backing us up that we could actually as an organization afford. And, and so I see us do that some, sometimes too. And that's, that's, that's just a scenario of, um, we're firefighters and, and and we're not we're not ceos nobody nobody ever taught us to figure that stuff out and so we we make goofy mistakes sometimes <laughs> what was uh what was one of the most i say that that's one of the most proudest things you were able to accomplish when you were converting king from this technology into a combination well I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was an accomplishment that I recognized at the time. I spent, I spent seven years with them. Quite frankly, I probably, I probably would have finished it out there, but, um, I'm an only child and my are in the quad cities still, they're still in Hampton and, um, 800 miles away from aging parents, uh, that you need to take care of because you're an only child. It's too far. Mm -hmm. And so we made the decision to come back home. And that's, that's when I, I took the position at Hanover Park and stepped in there. But um, King, King's pretty, pretty cool organization. And they, they really embraced and built out that, that combination model that, that um, I had been directed to, to try to build. Um, but the thing that I'm most proud of coming out of that is that when I go back there now, it's not, not any one thing that occurred uh, while I was there, I could say, hey, we did this and this was really neat and this was great. And I'm really super proud of that. That's not it. That's not it at all. When I go back to that organization and I left that organization in 2002, I could and they're much bigger and they, they have a lot more staff and they're, you know, they're they're really doing a fantastic job serving the community. But I can walk back into that fire station today and walk to the back of the rig and throw the tarp up on the back of the rig and the hose loads are the hose loads that were on that rig when we built that organization because we we assessed them we evaluated them we determined what was going to be right for the community and that's what we put in place and it stood the test of time um the strategic planning scenarios that we laid out back in beginning in 1995 1976 1997 they have played out and built and added on to and put in place. So when I, when I go back, I see an organization that is much larger, but that is sitting on the foundation that was created back in those early days when we put it together. And um, that is hugely rewarding to me to say, fast forward 25 years from when we started. And, you know, it, it, it's very, very difficult. Hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's very difficult to see what the future is going to look like when you're in the middle of doing the work. So for me to go back 25 years down the road and look at an organization that we got more right than we got wrong, and there were some fantastic folks. My, my deputy chief, Mike Merritt, that was with me, um, Lieutenant Keith Handy, uh, our first paid guy that was with us, now now battalion chief. Um, I mean, we, we got... We got that foundation put together so we could build on top of it. And, and I'm hugely proud of it has stood the test of time. Uh, but you certainly don't know whether it's going to work or not when you're putting it together. You just hope it is.
Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's it's almost like a legacy, but without the ego. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So you get you get an opportunity now to come home, so to speak, to go to Hanover and sorry, um, Hanover Park and you know, you decided that you're the only child, so you're gonna come back home to be closer to your, your parents. Um how did that I mean, would it just call you up or like did you see the announcement or like how did you get get there? Um I saw the announcement that Hanover Park was was hiring and uh, they were looking for an outside fire chief. Um I will <laughs> I will say I will say this and it'll sound strange coming from a guy that's been the outside fire chief twice. Um, but I'm not a fan of outside fire chiefs. Um, I, uh, I am a fan of, uh, succession planning. I'm a fan of growing and developing your, your folks inside and, um, preparing them to lead the organization. And so, um, I had been the outside chief in King and I had been the outside chief in, in Hanover park. Um, but but yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of that model. Um, I think that outside chiefs can bring a lot of baggage to the organization that can hurt the organization. And uh, when I came in the door, that was my goal was to not hurt the organization based on my own my own baggage and junk that I would be bringing uh, to the table. But I saw the I saw the uh, the job announcement come open, and I and I knew a little bit about Hanover Park. I um, I had taught because I had continued to teach, you know, for the University of Illinois all these years. And I had taught a number of the Hanover Park guys and I knew they were, I knew they were pretty fantastic firefighters and was in a community that did a lot of work and it was, it was, um, it had some challenges. Um, but what I also know about Hanover Park is that, um, they had a real leadership vacuum and it had a leadership vacuum at the top many, many years. Um, they had been a fire protection district since really, um, uh, 1921 when the department came into being and um, the fire protection district um, in 2001 was in a position in which they were in essence bankrupt and um, that's pretty tough to do for a governmental entity to get yourself in a position where you're bankrupt they couldn't pass a referendum they couldn't they couldn't solve their problems and so the um, the village you know or the municipal, you know, most people call it a city, but we call it here in Chicago land, the village, the village ended up taking the fire department and uh, merged them in to the municipality. I tell folks that if you made a list of all of the things that you do to make a merger successful, and over here, you made another list of all of the things that make a merger come apart, uh, the municipality picked the second one. And right. so, um, <laughs> it was, it was quite the mess. And, um, so I knew when the job came open, I knew it was kind of a community I wanted to work in. Um, I knew that they had some really great staff and I didn't think that their problems were nearly as big as they thought they were. So I applied and um, made it to the, made it to the finalist uh, group. And um, they, they uh, offered me the spot. And uh, I said, well, there's a couple things that you need to know before you hire me that I think are important. Um, one, I think you need to know that, that I got, I got a job and I love where I'm at and here's the reason that I want to come back. And I explained to him clearly that I was, I was looking to come home. Um, 
I said, but two, and, and this was the thing that I wanted him to know from the very beginning, is that um, if they hired me, my goal, my number one goal um, outside of fixing whatever little challenges they had, and like I said, they didn't, they didn't have a lot. They just thought they were bigger than they were. <laughs> my, my number one goal was to build an organization in which they never have to go outside for a fire chief again. And um, that I wanted them to know that that I thought we could construct a culture and and put in place a succession planning model in which that would be the scenario. And that if they hired me, that would be my goal, because I think there's way too much risk in going outside and grabbing that outside fire chief because you just don't know what you're going to get. So there's a lot of people who think the outside fire chief is the answer because it's this fresh set of eyes on our old problem. And you've talked about this baggage that people tend to bring in. Yeah. Can you just kind of touch on this a little bit more? Because even though you've been the outside fire chief twice, like, like it's almost like a pot's calling the kettle black, but there's reason behind it. And so kind of dive into that because I think this is something that's got a lot of value that especially for the fire service. Well, I think really there's probably three reasons that um, we go outside to hire an outside fire chief. One is the situation like like King had, where um, they needed to convert from a volunteer department to a combination department. They didn't have anybody in house to do it, so they needed to go outside and get somebody to come in and do that work. And I think that model is probably fine. And that you know sometimes we sometimes we need to do that. Um, the second uh, reason that we go outside is what I call the new broom sweeps clean mentality. Um, our leadership, whether that be a district board, a township board, a city government, a, you know, what, whatever, pick whatever leadership model you've got that is your governing body, they know they've got a, they got a problem, whether it be a labor problem, whether it be, um, you know, a, a problem with perception of the community could be, could be a variety of different things, but they believe they got a problem. So they run down this path of, we're going to bring in the new broom and the new broom is going to is just going to sweep this stuck down mess of garbage up in our organization they're going to solve all the problems they're going to just fix it and we're going to be okay and we're going to and we're going to go down the we're going to go down the right path what they miss in that is that you're really not getting a new broom you may be getting a clean broom at the bristle level but when you're hiring a fire chief, you're bringing somebody in the door that's got some experience. You're bringing in somebody that's got some some um, successes and some failures. They've got uh, things that they've learned. Uh, they've got some things they should have learned and maybe didn't. And all of that is embedded in that broom. And so when you come in and you really start sweeping and you think that you're going to sweep up the mess, well, some of that baggage that comes along starts to fall out. And... Um, that can have a real negative impact on our organization. Um, you know, oftentimes what I, what I see uh, chiefs from the outside come in and do is that they come in and they, they want to build the organization that they're the new chief of to look like the organization they just came from. And the reality is, is that every fire department and they can be fire departments to sit right next to each other. Every fire department's got their own culture. They have their own values. They have their own systems of how they do things. And when that outside chief comes in, 
the 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 easy thing to do, the comfortable thing to do is to say, okay, well, I'm the boss and we're going to do what it is that I know how to do. And they never learn how to become an actual member of the organization. And so um, when that occurs, you run into the conflict between the membership's values and what they bring to the table and, and the good things that they do, because not everything in every organization is bad, even though that's maybe what our governing boards think, that, well, the fire department right. is bad. Not everything is bad. And so all of a sudden you hit this cultural value issue between the new chief and the existing personnel that are there. And when the new chief fails to um, step back and say, I need to be part of this organization, then, then we run into trouble. And, and I would say equally as many times as we're successful of bringing in an outside fire chief to do that, um, equally as many times uh, we break the organization by bringing in that guy from outside. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of risk there. And um, I, I think there's, sometimes it's got to happen. Absolutely, it's, it's, sometimes. But I think we need to enter in with our eyes wide open to know yeah, what, yeah. what the potential uh, challenges are going to be there. And I think we need, as out, if you're the outside fire chief coming in, the first thing you need to do is you need to understand the firefighters, they want to know a little bit about the organization you just came from, but a little bit means a little bit. That means don't come in the door, don't continue to talk about your old organization to the point that they're sick of hearing it, and certainly don't try to turn your new organization into the one that you just left. You need to learn how to be, you need to learn how to be a firefighter in the organization in which you just got hired into. Um, and sometimes I think we, we screw that up. So that's the, that's the second one. That's the new broom sweeps clean mentality. And I think the third reason that we hire outside is because we have no other option. We failed a succession plan. We failed as leadership to develop the folks that were underneath us who needed to come up and, and move through that organization and be ready to leave. So if you think about those three things, you can put them together in varying configurations, but um, if you don't have succession planning, you know, the new broom sweeps clean mentality, which isn't necessarily what we want. And, you know, the scenario of where, you know, you're moving from volunteer to combination. It, as I step back and look at it and I see the outside chief come in, it's usually one of those three or a variation of that that gets you in a position where you're going to hire outside. And um, we had that conversation when, when, when I came to Hanover Park. And I said, my goal will be if you hire me, you don't have to go outside again and we'll, and we'll figure that out and we'll fix that. And I'll leave you in a position in which you're ready to, to make that transition from inside. I, I think one of the things about number three, which we have no other option, we failed to develop people underneath us. That's not just one person's failure. No. And it's very easy for organizations, board of fire commissioners in particular, I, I know a couple of them can say, well, you know, he didn't do his job. Well, they, they report to you. Correct. So this is a systemic issue. This is not one person's fault. And it's not like it could be city government. It could be, you know, a board. It could be a fire protection district. You know, it could be Ringling Brothers for all we care. But like, it, this is not just one person's issue when you have that no other option. You have to hire from the outside. And that's, that's 
and I would I would argue that it even goes it even goes lower than the board or the fire chief level. I would argue that it goes to hiring. Who's doing your hiring for you? Who's doing your recruitment? Who's who's bringing in folks that that have the same values of the values of your organization? Um, so you need to hire the right people. Uh, so who's your who's your HR players? Who are your people that are doing that work for you? That's that's a that's a key aspect. Um, and then once you get them in the door, who's their field training officers? Who's building them? Who is developing developing them for that next step? Uh, who are your senior senior man? Um, who's your company officers? Helping the people underneath them. The senior man should be developing that those those junior firefighters to ultimately become the senior man. That's succession planning. The senior, the company officer needs to be developing the senior man to become if they want. Uh, a company officer. The company officers need to be being mentored by the battalion chiefs, their shift commanders, so that if they want, they can make that move. That is a whole model that that uh, has to come together and builds on top of each other to su successful and succession plan in an organization. And so when it falls apart, it's you're absolutely correct. It's a failure on multiple levels, and it's not just on the not sitting on the shoulders of one person. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, something I've unfortunately seen a couple times, you know. So that's, but it's good to hear that there's like for anybody who's struggling with this, there is a way to kind of start to you know turn the ship around. You yeah. might not turn on a dime, but you can start making that shift culturally. It's uh, it's like one of our trustees here in Hanover Park told me when I came, and he was he was a Navy guy and uh, spent spent a long time on an aircraft carrier carrier, and he said you are you are not going to turn an aircraft carrier around on a dime unless you want to start dumping million dollar aircraft into the, into the drink. It's going to take some time to make it work, but you got to stay with it and it'll turn. And, and I think that's the same scenario in a fire department as well. So now you, you come into this position in Hanover park and I mean, I've seen pictures, the place didn't burn down after you left. So you were successful, <laughs> but like, you're going to, you're going to start, you're going to start building a culture. You're going to start building the people up. Like, what does this look like? You know, and I know this is like, you know, we're, we're, we're over an hour into this already, but like, you know, this isn't as simple as putting a couple motivational posters around the firehouse and telling the guys, Hey, you're really good at your job. I like, go get them. You know, I think it starts with hiring. I think, I think when you, when you want to, change the culture of the organization. Uh, you got to realize that it's probably a 10 year change. You got to have some folks that's got to leave and you got to hire some new folks. And, it, and I think it starts with hiring. Uh, one of the things that we did when I came and I said, we were going to, we were going to, um, we were going to modify the culture so that we could, we could promote from inside and grow and develop our future leaders. We said, we were going to hire from, we were going to hire the right people. So we spent a lot of time talking about what the, what the right people for Hanover Park looks like. And we came up with what we call the 80-20 rule. And um, the 80-20 rule is that 80% of our assessment criteria is going to be based on the individual's heart. So their motivation, their drive, their compassion, why they want to come to work, what, what, it, what it is that they bring to the table, what's their, what's their commitment and passion to serve the residents of the community percent of our assessment criteria was going to be focused on the skills, education, and experiences that they brought to the table. 
our theory was this. Um, if we hired an individual who had a very, very strong educational background, but they didn't have the heart issues that we thought were very uh, culturally important for our organization, then we had a bad employee. If we hired an individual who had all of the heart characteristics that were correct, but they were short in some of the educational certification things that we needed to ultimately have for them, we're the fire department, we're in the training business. We can fix that. We can right. fix training issues. You can't fix heart issues. So we built our entire assessment and hiring process around that 80-20 rule and started hiring folks that were going to be part of and bring to the table the similar values of Hanover Park Fire Department. That means that there are, there are folks that were great firefighters in other organizations outside of Hanover Park, and we took a pass on them. And it's not because they were bad firefighters. They just didn't fit with us. Right. And, and so that was the first step. Once, once we started hiring those, those folks, we started to uh, build opportunities in which we gave them the opportunity to step in and lead projects, uh, to manage different events, do different things that would um, allow them to use their unique skills and gifts to impact in a positive way how our organization operates. And so we didn't set them up to fail, but we allowed them to do some pretty, pretty impactful stuff for the organization. So as a new guy coming in the door, once we get you off probation, it, it's not that you're just going to swirl toilets and watch fire trucks and go on calls. You're going to have to be part of the leadership of the organization. You're going to have to do some stuff. There's some expectations. You're going to have to work hard. Mm -hmm. And the more opportunities you give them, you're just building their skill set. And you get to see where it is that, that you're going. You get to see what they want to do. You talk to them about it. Um, you have conversations openly about where, where, you, where, you're, where is your level of excitement? What do you want to do? How can we help you? How can we grow you? Where are you missing things? How do we need to help send you to school? And recognize that everybody is not, everybody doesn't need to look exactly the same. We all bring different gifts and talents to the table. How do we use that to make the organization better and stronger? So we gave them those experiences. And what we saw pretty quickly is that usually when a new officer gets, a, new, a firefighter moves from from firefighter to lieutenant, you know, there's that six or maybe a year sometimes for that lieutenant to really learn how to be a boss. Um, what we found is the more we poured into those firefighters under the rank of, of company officer, when they made that first transition to the officer level, the time frame between the move and when they were fully functional became shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter because in many ways they were doing the job before they ever made the move. And so honestly, what, what occurred in Hanover park is that, um, we were in a scenario in which we, we built and we succession plan and we had, we had people retire and people move and all of those things took place. But when I started this process 19 years ago, nobody ever said to me, well, if you, if you get it right at some point, as the fire chief, you're going to be the guy in the way. And tell me that. <laughs> but the reality came down to 
uh, Chief Eric Fours, my my number two, my executive officer, was ready to be fire chief. And there were fire departments outside that were saying, Eric's Eric's the guy, and we're going to try stealing from Hanover Park. And so we had prepared him. He was ready to go. He wanted to be fire chief. He wanted to be fire chief in Hanover Park. But as long as I continued to stay in the position, he was never going to get that opportunity. Or he would wait me out, and then he would get the opportunity based on his age and tenure in the pension system to get to be fire chief three or four years. And three or four year fire chief doesn't get to, it, it'll take you three or four years to, to really accomplish any anything of any significance. So you need to be chief longer than that. What is the magic number for a fire chief? I don't think it's set in stone, but in your opinion, like three to four years is when you're figuring out the job. Some people say fire chiefs have a five-year expiration date and they should be cycled out. And I don't necessarily believe that to be true. I don't know that I know that answer. I think okay. that there are there are some fire chiefs that about three months after they get the job, they ought to cycle out. And then, and then there are some fire chiefs that, you know, are 25-year guys. And, um, you know, they're fantastic. And, and that's what the organization needs. So I don't, I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule. What I knew and recognized in Hanover Park was, is that I needed, I needed to let Eric be fire chief. Yeah. And, and for the health of the organization, I needed to let Eric be fire chief. And that didn't mean I was ready to quit being fire chief. That meant it was yeah, time to make a move. That was going to be my next question was how do you how how did you overcome that struggle because you know there's days where i'm just frustrated because i think especially in the last two years this has been extremely challenging in emergency services but i don't want to leave like i i enjoy being a company officer and i mean i i tell everybody all the time like there's chances of promotion but that front right seat is an amazing place to be um but now you're in a position where you you very much know what the cure is and it's uh it's gonna be a little poison to take to make sure that cure works like how how did you how did you work through that oh man it was it was incredibly challenging to um you know the right thing and um we had talked about it so much openly within the organization as to who we were, what we were, what our culture was, what our values were, and that there was coming a day in which step out and the organization was gonna was gonna move and we we're gonna fill my spot. So it would be pretty hypocritical to get to the to get to that point and then go, oh, you know, I I changed my mind. I'm staying. Uh, so so quite frankly, that was a that was a driving realization of you know, you're either going to be the biggest hypocrite in the world, or you need to you need to practice what it is that you've been preaching for a long time. So, so that was that played in there, and and I, and I had those discussions. Um, the the other the other key aspects that were were helpful for me is that um, um, my wife was she was with me. She was 100 percent supportive of what was going on, and when the when the time was there. In fact, she was telling me it's time you. For the, you know, you love the organization, but it's 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 time for you to step out and let let uh, Chief Forrest, um, you know, make that move. It, it's 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 there. Um, you know, our our mayor, Mayor Craig, I had those conversations there. So it it was a process to work through, but ultimately I, we we knew we needed to do. 
I want to interrupt you just for a second, too. For all the people who are watching and listening, I got the chance to talk with about that revolutionary fire tactics of the lake, and she said that to me. Like, she's, like, was pushing him to say, like, hey, it's time. And I think that's uh, – maybe it's just a personal note for myself, but, like, there's times where, like, we don't look at marriage and that partnership in the fire service like it should be. And I was so impressed that you and your wife had that level of communication because it wasn't a dig at you. It was completely surrounded from love and support and her being able to see who you were and where this was and to make that statement. So, like, you know, that's just like, so I want some people to understand that because it's not, uh, if you ask her, she'll tell you. <laughs> and I do encourage you to talk to Beth if you come across uh, Beth and if you're at one of the classes that she is teaching here. She is, I appreciate you saying that. She is, um, she is the quintessential fire chief's wife is uh she she has the she understands completely when when i am out representing the organization she represents me and and it is an equal partnership as we as we lead moving forward in this organization um couldn't couldn't pull it off couldn't have pulled it off and existed all these years if she wasn't there you know helping me move through that so yeah she's telling me it's time Time to go. Now, what um, I will say has been probably the greatest uh, blessing to me after after making the decision to retire this past July. Um, uh, Chief Forrest got promoted. The, the, the group moved exactly as we had outlined that it would. But um, the department has... Um, been very, very gracious to me to not treat me as, okay, he was here, he was the fire chief, he retired and he's gone. Um, they still view me, still use me as a, as a resource. They, um, I make a, I make a point to not, not be around, um, to not get in the way of, uh, you know, or overshadow any of the leadership that the chief force uh, needs to do. That would be wrong on my part to do that. Um, but, uh, chief fours and team, they will reach out to me. They'll say, Hey, come in and take a look at this. Uh, come in, let's, let's talk through this with you. I just want to get your perspective on this. Am I thinking the right way? Are we heading down the right path? Is it, are we missing anything? So they, they continue to rely on, my experiences in the organization a lot to continue to rely on on my expertise um to help them continue to guide and make good decisions for the for the department and that doesn't happen on a on a regular like every every kind of day thing where uh, you know i'm overshadowing what they're doing but yet when it right. comes to big decisions they reach out and and that has made me feel very very much still part of an organization that i love and um, and I I feel incredibly blessed that they that they continue to treat me that way. No, that's awesome. I, I cannot stress to the guys enough, especially when it just comes to retirees in general. Like my my senior man, old or old senior man, you know, Craig Ellerton is still welcome back in the firehouse anytime that he can stop by because I love seeing him. And it's one of those things sometimes where I'm just too busy, but I call him like after fires and stuff like that. I still call him and tell him what happened, you know, one to keep him in the loop, but just to have somebody to bounce something off of. And, you know, he'll, he'll be, he won't hesitate to tell me if I made a mistake, you know, 
or give me the encouragement and say like, Hey, you know, good work. Like it sounds like you had things under control, whatever. And that's just, can't stress it enough for people. It's awesome that they're doing that for you. It's, yeah. it's, it's been a big deal to help me with the transition, the transition out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, uh, for me, I, you know, I've stepped into the consulting world. So I get to, I get to work with, with departments that have challenges and, uh, do what I've learned how to do over the years. That's, that's been really helpful to me. Um, I went back and joined the volunteer fire departments. So, uh, I'm back on the street riding as a firefighter paramedic and that that's been really good. So, um, all of those parts and pieces come together, at least for me, they've come together to help me as through the transition of, uh, stepping away. But I think you gotta, you gotta know as a boss when it's time to go. And that doesn't mean it's easy, but you gotta know. Yeah. Now you've written before, if you have over 40 professional trade journal articles, but the, I think one of the like the cherry on the top here is you've come up with this book. You've authored a new book, The Dynamic Fire Chief: Management Theories for Strategic Organizational Leadership. Uh, you're actually going to be out of FDIC with the book. Uh, I hope to see you out there and get an autographed copy of it. I'll, oh, absolutely. So, but talk to me a little bit about the book and what what really this Dynamic Fire Chief: Management Theories for Strategic Organizational Leadership is about. Well, it's. Um... It's really what we've been talking about as we as we go along here. Um, yeah. How it came about, I guess, probably the 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 best way to describe it is the title, the Dynamic Fire Chief. It's um, the Revolutionary Fire Tactics at the Lake Conference. That's uh, when when uh, David and his wife uh, Beth started putting that conference together, and they had asked me to to come and participate. Um, David said, "Hey, I want you to build a I want you to build a class for chiefs, and I want, I want you to talk about." What it's what it's like to do the job, not from the standpoint of going to going to fires and managing incidents and that. Uh, that's all the fun, sexy stuff that we do. But that's, you know, that's that's someplace between one and ten percent of what we do. It's the other ninety percent where we get into trouble because nobody ever taught us to do. And, and I want you to come work on that stuff. And he and he called it this the the course the dynamic fire chief. Mm-hmm. So when uh, I was approached about about writing a book and um, you know thinking through some of the some of the various topics, um, the the title "Dynamic Fire Chief" was was right out there. It was it was like we're just going to steal this from from what David put together already, and that's how we'll title this title this book. But um, the book really is it brings together a, a compilation of. Um, the things that you need to know as the chief executive officer. We don't think of the fire chief as a CEO. We think of the fire chief as the senior firefighter. Um, and we, we teach you how to do tactics. We teach you how to run incidents. We teach you how to respond to calls. And we do that and we do it well and we like it. But the reality is, is if you're going to sit in the top spot, you really are the chief executive officer of the organization, which means you need to know budgeting. You need to know uh, HR issues. And you need to know legal. And you need to understand how you hire and how you discipline and how you do internal investigations and, and labor management and on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So um, really what the class at the revolution was based on was um, uh, fire chiefs from across the country would call me on a pretty regular basis and say, how do I do this? Right. Right. How do I, how do I build a sinking fund for a fire apparatus? So I don't have to beg for money when it comes time to replace one of them. How do I 
how do I manage my budget? How do I, uh, how do I do an internal investigation? How do I, um, uh, how do I, I figure out the best way to do employee performance evaluations? Because the system we're using stinks. So um, I would give them, hey, this is what I've done. This is what I, I got right. This is what I got wrong. Here's the unfettered truth as to what I screwed up. And here's what I tried and worked. And so when we built the class for the lake, um, I brought some of those things forward. And um, my general personality is I'll, I'll just tell you the truth if i messed it up i messed it up if i got it right i got it right and so when i was approached about doing this book i said well let's let's take let's take those things that i've been most asked about and we'll build those into the chapters and so uh, we talk about in the book everything from uh, succession planning to strategic planning to uh, vision casting to um, uh, employee uh, discipline, internal investigations, uh, managing the money, generation of revenue, um, employee performance evaluations. So all, and, then, and that's just that's just little snippets of what's in there. So it's it's all things that um, really the fire chief who um, maybe was taught to be a fire ground manager and was never taught to be the chief executive officer it's really a book where they can say listen i, I don't know i don't know how to manage my line items in the budget open the book up through flip through the pages and it'll teach you how to manage your line items in your budget and it'll give you straightforward examples on how to do that um so that's that's really what it is that's what it's really about it's it's in some ways a textbook some ways it's a it's got some case studies of what's right and what's wrong um but it's all designed to help the fire chief be successful in a skill set that they typically don't have. I think of, I have a file on my computer at work in the desktop that uh, it's Lieutenant Ridley's list of shit that he doesn't know how to do. Um, <laughs> because there was things that I just never got exposed to as a firefighter. And it's not, ultimately the organization didn't prepare me for it, but I don't think they had the resources and the, forethought to to really like put into this stuff you know and it was something as simple as like i remember going it was actually not even promoted yet i was just in charge of a shift and i got a vehicle fire it was most likely a cigarette that went into the back of the of the uh, the cushion it burned up so like they threw a water bottle on it and extinguished but it smoked the car out and it was just it wasn't an involved car fire. Like this person could drive this car away with the exception that it smelled horrible from this plastic. And it was, the hole was this big in the seat in the back. Car ended up getting totaled because of all the smoke damage to it. You know, like, I mean, just, and there was all this stuff that I didn't know how to do because I've dealt with a fully involved car fire. That's easy. VIN number, find it, put it in a report. The car's worth this much. Like, I mean, the insurance company will figure out what caused the fire. Like I don't have to investigate it in detail, you know, and I, I think that's one of the things that I'm really excited to read about this book because this is, and we talked a little bit about this beforehand off, offline was this is like the stuff they don't tell you, you know, that, that that's not written down in the, well, it's written down in the book now, but like, you know, the things that like you think you're going to become fire chief, even in a volunteer organization and there's budgets, there's all these other things that are, you know, even in today's day and age, we, we made a joke about blackballing somebody before and, and voting them out of the company, but we can't do that. We can face a, you do it the wrong way. You're going to face, 
you know, a civil suit possibly, wrongful termination. Like these are all all things that can come out, and it's not just as simple as it was. What questions do you ask on an employment application? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I in, in my consulting work, at a had a department the other day. They sent me their uh, employment application, and it it asked for their T-shirt size on it. And I said, you can't you can't ask about their T-shirt size. And they're like, well, we need to know what T-shirt size to order for them, so when they become a member, we can give them a T-shirt. They completely harmless question in their in their mind, right, right. and and they didn't mean anything negative by that at all, except the court system is gonna is gonna twist that if you decided to not hire that individual, how you discriminated against them based on the size of individual they are, big or small, because you ask about what size T-shirt they are they they had. That's the kind of stuff that we cover in the book. We talk about junk like that to try and. Yeah help the, the normal firefighter that they, there's no maliciousness in anything that they do. They're just trying to lead their organization, but nobody ever taught them to think through some of these things that'll get you into serious trouble and ultimately will shorten the career span of a fire chief because they, they just made a mistake on something that, that they just didn't know the answer to. Yeah. And so yeah. I've tried to, I've tried to help, cover a lot of those things so that the whether you're volunteer or you're paid you can look at it and go oh yeah let's let's not do that and and that's what's in there that's that's one of the driving factors of the book well i'm i'm looking forward to getting my hands on it so i i mean we're, we've been at this for about an hour and 40 minutes now chief i don't know if it's it, it feels like it's been five minutes of us just talking great <laughs> out of the history i've gotten probably four to five pages of notes here just on on as we're, we're we're going through writing down some of these nuggets that you've been uh, kicking out. So we're going to see at FDIC. We're going to see at Revolutionary Fire Tactics the leak uh, in yep. July. Um, where can people find you if they need to get a hold of you? They need to get a hold of me. Easiest way is uh, just just send me an email. Um, I'm uh, I'm available. I can can help you. However. Um, uh, you want me to you want me to give you that now, or you want to put it up, or yeah? Why don't you just say it now, and then we'll try to put it up in the show notes afterwards. Okay. As well, it's just C Hag, so it's C H A I G H at S B C Global dot net. And uh, if you want to, you want to sit down, you want to talk about something. Um, you you need some assistance with something. You 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 need a you need a policy. Uh, send me an email. I'll I'll do whatever I can to to assist you and help you out. But that's the easiest way to find me is um, to send me a quick email. Awesome. Well, Chief, it's been a pleasure. I mean, we've we've covered so much, and there's more. We're gonna have to have you back because there's just there's too much going on that we didn't even hit on tonight. But thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. Um, this is this has been a blast. So thank you for coming on National Fire Radio. This is a this has been a good time. Thank you. It's been an honor. Everybody, this is Rob National Fire Radio with. Chief Craig Haig, retired out of Hanover Park Fire, author of Dynamic, uh, excuse me, Dynamic, the Dynamic Fire Chief Management Theories for Strategic Organizational Leadership. We're going to see you out there. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you guys later. Look, at I run into burning buildings for a living. You know, it does affect us. PTSD exists. But where do we vet all that out of? wind therapy.
Chief, thank you. That was awesome. They, they would do what you want? I, I, I try to come up with a plan half the time.